Now, when you hear about Abraham's life, you may be thinking about one altar. But the truth is, is there were many altars in Abraham's life. There were many altars, and those altars all defined him. In fact, when I was thinking about what to call this sermon, I almost called it, if you give God an inch, he'll take you for miles. Because the ask of God to Abraham started off not simple, but kind of clear. He said, leave your father's land. He said, leave your father's house. Go from your country to the land that I will show you. And if you do this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. That's a great promise, isn't it? And you know, each one of us comes into Christianity with a great promise, a great promise. Not only are we saved, but then Jesus says, and if you follow me, you're going to have abundant life. There's going to be this life that you're going to walk into. You're going to have love for people that you never thought you could have. I was talking to somebody two days ago, and and, and they're kind of new to the faith journey, and they said, Destiny, I just love people now. It's really inconvenient. I said, you know, that's kind of a funny thought, but, but it is inconvenient to love people. And yet she has this love for people, and she's going out of her way for people. And, and that's one of the promises of following God is having love, having joy. Anybody who's ever struggled with depression or anxiety will tell you how important it is to have joy in your life. Peace. Peace that passes all understanding. Those are incredible promises of the abundant life. But the thing is, is that it comes with, if you will, follow me. And Abraham's promise was the same way. If you will, follow me. So he did. He went and he obeyed God. He went to one area called Shechem, and he set up an altar there. And then he went to another area called Bethel, and he set up an altar there. And I'm kind of counting that as one altar season in Abraham's life. And I would call these the altars of obedience, the altars of obedience. When you just answer the call, when you just say, okay, God, I'm in. I don't know what that even means, but I want it. I love that. When I talk to people and I'm like, are you all in? They're like, don't know what that is, but yes, I'm ready to be. I want more. I want more of God. I don't even know what more there is, but I want that more. I hope I always stay at that place where I'm willing to step out in faith and do the obedient thing. And in this case, this was not a fuzzy obedient thing. This was a very specific obedience thing. He had to leave behind what he had, and he had to walk into something new. He had to do something new. And you know, obedience always demands us to do something new. Anybody like to make lists? Yes, of course. We love our lists, right? How many of you write things on your list that you already did so you can check them off? Oh, I did that yesterday. I was feeling bad about my list because I hadn't gotten anything done. And so I wrote two things on my list that I had done so that I could check the boxes. And that way I actually got half of my list done. Yeah, I did that. And some of you probably have done that before too. But there's check the box obedience. 
And God's obedience isn't like that. You, you don't get to say, well, I have done this, and so I'm going to check that as my obedience. No, God will always ask you for something new. He will ask you to give more grace. He'll ask you to forgive someone you haven't forgiven. He'll ask you to show love or kindness to someone that it's hard to show love or kindness to. He'll ask you to do something new, to step out of your comfort zone, to serve in a way that you've never served before, to inconvenience yourself in a way that you've never inconvenienced yourself before, maybe to stop doing something that's fine for other people. It's always something new. But when you set up the altar of obedience, you'll always end up setting it up in two places. And the first place is the Shechem. Now, Shechem has a whole history that comes after this that's very, very bloody and then it's very redemptive. And if you read the Bible, you'll see Shechem in some very specific places. But right now, it's the place of the promise. It's where God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. And we have to set up an altar there and remember the promises that God has spoken into our life. But it's not enough just to hear the promises of God and set up an altar there. We also need to have an altar in Bethel. And see, Bethel is the place of the encounter with God. So you have this area where you get the information of the promise. And then over here, you have the revelation of who God is. And you have to have both in order to follow God. My dad used to describe information and revelation this way. He said, in football, they can tell you that the, um, you know, that the DB is tall and he's strong, and he's big, and he hits hard. But as a wide receiver, it is only when that DB hits you that you get the revelation of how tall and strong and big that guy really was. Everyone told me that the newborn stage was difficult, But it was not until I could not process a single sentence and I was thinking, I now understand why sleep deprivation is defined by the Geneva Convention as torture, that I had a revelation of how hard that season can be. And in our Christian walk, we can never settle for information. And that's why it's important for us to come into the presence of God in a corporate setting. That's why it's important for us to cultivate the presence of God in our individual lives so that we're not just getting information, but we're also experiencing the revelation of who God is, the altar of obedience. And so Abraham obeyed God. He went into the land, but then all of a sudden there was a famine. There was a terrible famine. And so Abraham decided to go down into Egypt for a little while. So God had promised him all of these wonderful things, but suddenly he was afraid and suddenly he was concerned that he wasn't going to have enough and that God wasn't going to be able to provide in the here and now. And so many times, I myself, and I I think a lot of people come to this place where, oh, I can believe God for my future. It's today I have a problem with. You know? Oh, I can believe God that he's going to save my, you know, brother who's strung out on cocaine and who's dealing with all of this. But I don't know about, you know, God being able to deal with my anxiety. 
It's today. It's what we're facing today with. And so Abraham made a choice. He decided to turn away from the land that God had promised him because there wasn't enough and to go down into Egypt. And not only did he do that, but, you know, one fear leads to another fear. Have you ever noticed that? Like when you start letting fear in your life in one area, it doesn't play fair, does it? It just starts jumping into all kinds of areas. My mother used to say, you can't be lazy in one area. It's going to creep into every area, but it's the same way with fear. It's the same way with anxiety. It's the same way with worry. We think that we can compartmentalize it, but it just creeps. And so here he was, and he was afraid of not having enough, and that's what drove Abraham and Sarah into Egypt, right? But now he's afraid that everybody's going to look at Sarah, and they're going to say, you're beautiful, and they're going to kill him and take her for his wife. And so he tells her to lie, and she ends up being taken into Pharaoh's household. What's so interesting about this part of the story is that it's not like Abraham comes to his senses and goes, man, I made a mistake. And, you know, like gallant knight, you know, storms up to the castle and says, let her throw, you know, whatever. No, God literally has to intervene and send plagues on Egypt Which, by the way, isn't that a beautiful foreshadowing of what's going to happen with the children of Israel, right? Another famine was going to drive the children of Israel into Egypt. And once again, it wouldn't be any man who would deliver the children of Israel. It was going to be the hand of Almighty God saying, I'm going to take you up out of Egypt and I'm going to put you back where you belong. But, you know, enough about that. So we see that, and we see her. She's there, and God delivers Sarah, and he delivers Abraham. And not only does he deliver them and make up for what Abraham has done, but he blesses Abraham. Another beautiful foreshadowing. Abraham gets rich off the deal because Pharaoh is so repentant for violating God that he sends Abraham with all kinds of goods and servants and things. And so he comes into Egypt one way, but he leaves wealthy and full. He comes into Egypt as a refugee from a famine, and he lives as wealthy, leaves as wealthy as a king. And what does he do? He goes back to Bethel where he had his altar. And you know, sometimes when we go through seasons of disobedience, we go through seasons of fear, and we go through seasons where we're not believing God the way that we needed to believe God. We need to run back to the altar where we encountered him. We don't need to go somewhere else and try to build a new altar. We need to run back to the place where we encountered God and remember the promises that he's spoken over us and remember the things that he's revealed to us in in the past. So that's the second altar. He revisited the altar of encounter and then he understood, he had a revelation that God even uses the bad things for the good of his plan. God even uses the bad things for the good of his plan. And so they continue on and then all of a sudden we see a blast from the past. Now, we talked about how, like at the beginning, God told him to leave his father's house, told him to leave his country, told him to leave his family and and go to a new land. But he took somebody with him. 
he took his nephew Lot with him. And so we come to this place in the scripture where Abraham and Lot are now both really wealthy because of their experience in Egypt. And suddenly the land just doesn't, it's not able to hold both of them anymore. And so they come to an amicable parting. But you know it was painful. I mean, this was Lot. This was his nephew. This was his last link to the past. And you know, God will let you move forward into your new life holding hands with your past. He will. But eventually there will come a time where there's no longer room for your promise and your past. And you'll have to choose to let go. And you'll have to choose to move on. And you'll have to choose to get rid of the way that you used to think. And you'll have to choose to take off those prejudices. And you'll have to choose to cut that person out of your life. And you'll have to choose to change your routine. And we all know when we've come to those moments, don't we? Because suddenly you can feel it. There's tension. See, the way that they knew that they had to break up is because their herdsmen were fighting each other. And sometimes we can pray for peace where God means for there to be a parting of ways. We can pray for peace in a situation or in a relationship, and God's not going to bring peace until we let go until we reassess, until we create a new boundary, until we put it into the past, until we deal with the specific issue that we're dealing with. And that's what happens to Abraham. And then what's Abraham do? Abram builds an altar. He builds an altar to the Lord. And, you know, I I think in that moment he must have felt alone. Don't you think? I mean, You know, Abraham's the only kind of person from his family who's there. He's got Sarah. He doesn't have any kids. I mean, Lot's his nephew. He's close to him. And now his past is gone, and he feels an emptiness. But instead of just feeling isolated, he builds an altar to the Lord and affirms that he is dependent on God first. And sometimes we make a mistake of trying to push our past away without filling up that space with God's promises and filling up that space with God's love and filling up that space with a belief that who that person was to us, God, is more than what that person could ever be. Who that addiction was to us, God, is more than what that addiction could ever be. It's not just that God prunes and takes away. It's also that he causes us to have a harvest that's bigger than we could ever imagine. And so he sets up this altar, and he has this altar where he remembers the dependence that he has on the Lord. So then we see Abraham, and, and he goes on to this next season, and he goes to war. And he actually goes to war on behalf of Lot, because Lot has been captured, and there's all kinds of different things. And so he goes to war, and he just, he just completely devastates these people, and they just have all these spoils of war and just all this wealth and all of this stuff that's going on. And it's, it's absolutely amazing um, what happens and how God blesses Abraham in this season. But it says that after they had completely routed the enemy, they had gotten back everything that had been stolen. They had received back everything that they could have possibly had. Now, remember, God gave them all of this in Egypt, right? So he's just fighting to get back what God already gave him. 
You know, if God can give it to you once, then he can go back and help you to get it the second time. So he gets everything back, and what happens? In the Bible, it says that he gave a tithe, 10% of everything he had to the priest of Midian, to Melchizedek, who many people believe is a typecast of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, why is this important? Because he had just conquered, and his first reaction was gratitude. He had just won a great victory. Now, let's talk about where he had gotten his wealth from before. Before, he got his wealth from his dad, right? He left with a certain amount of wealth. Then he got his wealth from Egypt. And yes, God provided for him, but it came from Egypt. But this was the first time that Abraham had an opportunity to get wealth from his own hand. And yet, he didn't say, oh, this is mine. He recognized that he owed part of it back to God. And then this amazing thing happens. The king of Sodom comes out, and he's like, look, you can keep all these spoils. We just need our people back. We'll be good. And Abraham says, absolutely not. I'm not keeping any of this because I never want it said that you made Abraham rich because only God is my source. And, you know, when we talk about generosity, we're not talking about it because somehow the church is in need of money. We talk about generosity because it's an acknowledgement that God is our source, that God is the source of our health, that God is the source of our brilliance, that God is the source of our ideas, that God is the source of our work ethic, that God is the source of everything. And in our life, we have to have an altar of gratitude where we come to the conclusion that we will give so that we can have a new revelation of who is our source. I think it's interesting that Abraham set up this altar, this, this moment of sacrifice, this moment of gratitude, rather, before he had this revelation and before he said this to the king of Sodom. Before he spoke to him and said, no, you're not going to be the one, he gave first. Why? I think it's because giving breaks a hold on us that the world has. You know? It's funny how often the Bible talks about things like debt and talks about the way that we deal with our money. And sometimes I think that we can think that it's, it's just religious or it's this or that. No, it's about breaking our mindset that we are part of the world system. We are not. We are not part of the world system. We're part of God's economy. And God's economy operates on different principles. And one of the number one principles it operates on is generosity. That we are able, that we are powerful enough, that he is powerful enough in us so that we can have not just enough for ourselves, but for everyone else. You know, how is it that in America, the wealthiest country in the world, we have a lower savings rate than some countries that are completely impoverished? Why? Because why do we always feel like we don't have enough? If you ask 10 people on the street, do you have enough? Nine out of 10 will tell you no, even though we have more than most of the world. Why is that? Is it a reality or is it a mindset? 
But when we sacrifice, when we set up an altar of generosity, we break the hold that the lives of the enemy have on us. And we're able to say, God, you are my source. And I depend on you to fulfill the promise. The fifth altar is the altar of grace. Now, I love what happens. It's just amazing. You, you go from this moment of, of gratitude, and then all of a sudden, God starts to talk to Abraham, and, and, and he says, he, he reaffirms his covenant, and he says, you know, this is what's going to happen to you. I know that you're, you're childless. And Abraham's like, yes, I am childless. In fact, my servants are going to in- inherit my estate. There's no one, there's nobody even in my family. You took away Lot, so he's not even going to get it. You know, so I have all this wealth. Why have you made me wealthy? Why have you given me all this? You're not going to give me an heir. And God tells him, he says, no, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what I said. Instead, you are going to have a son who is your own flesh and blood. Look up at the sky, count the stars. So shall your offspring be. And this is what's so neat is that the Bible tells us that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He credited it to him as righteousness. Aren't you so glad that there's this beautiful mirror image of the Old Testament where we get to believe on Jesus Christ and take on his righteousness, right? You know, I was thinking about that today, and, 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 and I've heard different people talk about the credit on righteousness. When somebody gives you a credit, they chose to give you that credit. Anybody ever tried to take something back to a store? Like, do they give cash back anywhere anymore? I don't even know if they know how to open the cash drawer to give it back. What do they always say? We'll give you store credit. We'll give, it can only be used here, but we will give you store credit. And, and, you know, with Abraham, he got a credit from Almighty God, but it was a credit that could only be used with God. And sometimes I think that we, we miss the point that when we believe in God, it's not that we can take that and then take it over here to the world system and use it and trade it in for something. No, instead we can go into God's kingdom and into his throne room and say, you know what? You said that I wear the righteousness of Christ. Now I'm going to approach your throne boldly and I'm going to be able to ask for what I need. And so this is what happens to Abraham. He complains and he He cries out to God, which God's not intimidated by our crying out to him. God answers him. Abraham believes him, and God credits it to him as righteousness. But then something amazing happens. God makes a covenant with himself. Now, when when in the Old Testament, when they would make an altar and they would sacrifice something to God, that was one thing, right? It was a remembrance. It was worship. It, was, it could be a vow. It could be all kinds of different things. But then there was something else. And there was a way of making a covenant. And the only way you could make a covenant in the Old Testament was to involve blood, right? That was it. The blood covenants, the core of Christianity. And so what happens is God tells Abraham, he says, arrange a covenant moment for me. He tells him, he says, you know, cut open these animals, lay them on either side, create a corridor of covenant. Because in those times, they would walk arm in arm through this corridor of blood, and then it was a blood covenant, and it was serious, and it was an unbreakable contract. 
But in order to make a contract, you need two equals. That's really what you need. That's why, um, you know, in, in our economy, it, it's only supposed to be between um, an adult and an adult. So if you have a minor who wants to make a contract, an adult has to make it on their behalf, right? You can't make a contract between an adult and a minor. Why? Because they are not equals. But who is God's equal? There is none that is God's equal. And so we see this beautiful moment where Abraham sets up the altar, but God brings the covenant, and he walks with himself through the corridor. His presence moves through the corridor, and we see him make a covenant with Abraham that is still a covenant that's in force today that was completed in Jesus Christ where he said, I will redeem the earth and I will make you a blessing to all people. It's the altar of grace. It's the altar we can't build for ourselves. It's the altar that we have to get to. It's the altar that every other altar leads to, the altar of grace. And then we get to the sixth altar. So after he does this, after God makes a covenant with himself, Then, all of a sudden, Abraham allows the doubt of his wife. And sometimes we can get this kind of like, okay, well, the woman was doubting and the man and it's a male-female thing. I don't think that's really what it's supposed to tell us. You know, uh, in, in, in in this story, it's almost like Sarah operates as the heart of Abraham, as his subconscious, as, as his emotions, as his heart. And so here he allows his heart to be led astray and to lead him astray. And so she says, you know what? I realize that God just made a covenant with himself. You just had this big supernatural moment, but I'm a realist. Anybody ever feel that way after you have a great moment with God? I mean, you have this amazing moment where you, you know that God spoke to you. You wrote it down with a pretty pen in your journal. You know, you typed it out to your mom or your spiritual mom, and you told her all about it. And like two weeks later, you have that, but, you know, I I just have to make this happen on my own. I mean, God helps those who help themselves because that's in the Bible, and it's not. But, you know, that's in the Bible. And that's what he does. He has one of those moments where he just says he disregards the supernatural moment, and he just says, I'm just going to be practical when God's called us to be supernaturally practical. It's not that he's called us to be one or the other. He's called us to be supernaturally practical. And so what Abraham does is he sleeps with his maidservant, who he actually um, probably was given in Egypt. So he sleeps with his maidservant, and he has a son, Ishmael. And so now, you know, Abraham is like, okay, great. I've got an heir. This is going to work. This is going to go. This is going to be great. I'm telling you, I'm excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. And it is not. It's not fantastic at all. In fact, it causes all kinds of pain and all kinds of anguish. But this is the thing, is that then God asks for another altar. God asks for another altar. And I was thinking about this. I was like, God, why would you ask for circumcision at this point? You know, I mean, God could have asked him about circumcision like before he left Canaan. He could have asked him in Egypt. 
He could have asked him anywhere along the way. But I think that, that this is the point, is that Abraham had a supernatural moment where he encountered God, and yet he still didn't remember the promise in the moment where his heart went astray. And so God decided to put a permanent mark on him and everyone who would come after him in the line of faith so that they could not forget the promise, so that they could not forget what God had done, to, done for them, so that they could not forget that they were set apart. See, there's so many people who will come to the altar and they will have a supernatural experience and it will be absolutely fantastic and they will walk out and two weeks later they will be done with church forever because they haven't had the moment where it's written on their hearts. They haven't had the moment of circumcision where they go through the pain of obedience again. See, the journey started with an altar of obedience, an altar of promise, and an altar of revelation. But then he goes through all of these different things, gratitude and grace, and you get back to a place where it's just a deeper level of obedience, where God starts to ask for something personal. Have you been to that moment, to that altar, where God starts to ask for something personal? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's the way that you like to do certain things. Maybe it's your point of view. Maybe it's your politics. Maybe it's your Saturdays. Maybe it's the way you speak to your spouse. I don't know what it is, but it's that personal thing that you know that he's asking for, and it's going to require a new level of obedience. And this time, it's not going to be the exciting obedience of getting to walk in the new, you know, new town and packing up the tents and going to the new area. It's just going to be painful. You know, we have a house habit here of embracing discipline. And that's hard, isn't it? When we have to go, okay, God, I've tried it on my own. I've tried it experientially, but now I'm going to submit to the discipline of the Christian life. I'm going to submit. I'm going to allow you to write some things on my heart. I'm going to allow you to get intimate with me, to start chipping away at those things that I said were just mine. So he has this altar of circumcision. And, and this is so interesting. He, he gives this physical sign of Abraham's belief in him. It's a painful sign. It was going to be real hard to forget. And then he gives them new names. I just love this. He gives them new names. So it's this whole identity. See, identity is something that is most connected to us, right? And when God asks for that, isn't it hard? You know, if you've always been known as this and God says, give me that, you've always been respected in your community and God asks you to do something that your colleagues don't get, that makes you seem a little ridiculous. You've always been the smart one and God tells you, hey, I need you to go into this field where you're going to feel completely incompetent for a while. You've always been the one in charge and God asks you to serve. Whatever your label is, God eventually will ask for it because he wants us to have one identity. 
You know, I love that. I love that about Paul. You know, if Paul had just written his forgetting the things that are behind Scripture, like at the beginning of his Christian walk, we'd be able to dismiss it, wouldn't we? Because, I mean, he was a bad dude before he became a Christian. He was, he was mean. He was ruthless. But that's not when he writes it. He writes it after he does great things because he understood that along the Christian journey, we always have to come to the altar of identity where God asks for what is most intimately ours, where God asks for our label, where God asks for our self-worth, where God asks for it and in exchange gives us something new. It's so important that we not think that this was just about circumcision. It was about a new name. See, they agreed to circumcision, and they got the new name. And when we agree to submit to God, when we agree to submit to obedience, when we agree to submit to discipline, when we agree to give up our identity and be known only as loved and as a child of God, then we get the new name. Then we get the new name, and that identity will stay with us through every season. It'll stay with us through every transition. It will give us stability no matter what we are going through. It can't be shaken. It's the altar of identity. Just as a quick little note, everybody makes fun of Sarah for laughing, and I just want to point out, just here publicly, that Abraham laughed first in the Bible, and he did it publicly, okay? So he did it, like, in front of the angel, you know, because God tells Abraham that he's going to give Sarah a new name, and he laughs at the fact that Sarah is going to be mother of nations um, before Sarah does. So that is complete aside, but I just want you to know that. So next time somebody says Sarah laughed, be like, Abraham did it first. Okay. But, you know, God was still faithful even though he laughed. You know, and even though sometimes it's hard for us to believe, and we can go, man, this is crazy. I still believe God's going to use me as much as I screw up. Man, this is crazy. I still believe that there's a future and a hope for me, even though it seems like I just keep on, you know, marching around the same mountain over and over again. Man, I still believe that you're going to save my family, even though my family seems to get crazier by the day. You know, it's okay. God's not intimidated by our laugh. God's not intimidated by the fact that it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's absurd. It's absurd that he loves us. It's absurd that he came for us. It's absurd that he rescued us, but it's true. And God will still give you your new name, even when your heart kind of just wants to laugh. And then there's the, the seventh altar, the seventh altar. And that's the altar of sacrifice. So Abraham goes through this entire season with Ishmael, and he sends Ishmael away. And, you know, there's all of this heartbreak, so he loses one heir. But he still has Isaac, so he's good. But then God comes to him and he says, take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. You know what's interesting to me is that the Bible records Abraham arguing with God a lot. 
I mean, read Genesis. Genesis is a blast, I'm telling you. Like, anytime I'm doing a Bible reading plan, like, I don't have any trouble till we get to Leviticus, and then I'm just, I'm having issues. But, I mean, Genesis reads better than any novel ever could. It's amazing. And so there's all these things going on, and he, they, they, Abraham argues with God a lot. He, he really, you know, kind of talks back. God seems to like this about Abraham. But God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham just saddles up his horse and goes. And it feels so strange. And what's so funny is that most of the time when people talk about Abraham's story, they start there. And they say things to us, to me, to you, like, you've got to be willing to lay it all on the altar. And you know what? We do. We do have to be willing to lay the promise on the altar. We do have to be willing to lay it all down. But there were six altars before you got to that one. And you may say, well, I'm just not willing to get. No, God's just asking for you to take that first inch of obedience. That first step of obedience. That first step of saying, okay, I'll believe you on the promise you gave me today. Okay, I'll take the revelation that you've given me today. Okay, I'll believe that no weapon formed against me and my family is going to prosper. Okay, I will stop that one thing that you asked me to stop. Okay, okay. He's just asking for that one moment of obedience. He's he's asking for us to go back, build that altar of repentance, to revisit that moment when we've messed up. He's asking us to remember dependence on him and to set firm that we're going to depend. He's asking us to be grateful and to give generously. He's, He's asking all along the way all of these different things And that's why obedience is better than sacrifice in the Bible. That's what it says. The Bible tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. It's a silly story, but it's one of my favorites. When I was a little girl, um, I loved to uh, clean our kitchen floor and our playroom floor for my mom. Because she just, she loved it. She loved how shiny it was, and she just thought it was great. And so when she would leave for a few hours, I would always try to convince the babysitters to let me clean the floor. And I remember this one time, I I had cleaned the floor. I mean, it was beautiful. The kitchen was beautiful. The table was beautiful. and, And my mom came home, and she was hacked. I was like, why are you mad? Clean the whole kitchen floor for you. She said, but that's not what I asked you to do. I asked you to clean your room. That was the first day that I can ever remember her telling me that scripture. She said, baby, in the Bible it says that obedience is better than sacrifice. Because obedience takes us on the journey that God wants to take us on. And it prepares us for the moment of sacrifice. Obedience is what allows us to open the door and walk that promise out until we get to that supernatural moment where God asks for a huge sacrifice and we don't even we don't even argue 
We don't even talk back. We just get on the donkey and we ride to the mountain. And the Bible tells us why. The Bible tells us why Abraham felt that way in Hebrews 11. It tells us that it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Because Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. That's crazy. And yet it makes sense when you look at the other altars of Abraham's life. See, Abraham had learned after a lifetime of obedience and repentance and dependence and gratitude and generosity and grace and belief and a changed identity. He had learned to walk by faith. He had learned that God's way was best. He'd learned that God was his source. He'd learned that God was the author of life. And so many times we feel like we are failing at our Christian journey because we're looking at the stories of sacrifice and we're looking at the stories of faith that other people have at the end of their journey. And we're not looking at the small steps of obedience that began their journey. So tonight, I would encourage you, when you look at this key figure of faith, don't just read his Hall of Fame story. Don't just say, oh my goodness, yes, Abraham, he's the one who was even willing to sacrifice his son. Remember him as the guy who was willing to leave his homeland but kept a little piece of his past right there in the tent with him. Remember him as the guy who was so afraid that he basically sold out his wife twice in his story. Remember him as the guy who was willing to repent each and every time, who came back to that altar where he had been so many times before. Remember him as the father of our faith, who walked a journey that we all have to walk, a journey of obedience. Will you stand with me, please? I hope tonight that, I hope tonight that I inspired you to go home and open Bible Gateway and read Abraham's story, maybe with different eyes. Maybe I open up a commentary and see what some other people say about him. I hope that I inspired you to get a little nerdy with it. I'm not gonna lie. But more than that, I, I hope that I hope that you've gotten the point that obedience is better than sacrifice. D don't look to, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were so frustrated um, with their uh, spouse. And they said they just don't wanna, they don't wanna go all out, they don't wanna sell out, they don't wanna, you know, go all in with Christianity. They're just kind of tiptoeing around it. And, you know, I just wanna, I just wanna sell out. I wanna just move to, you know, the mission field. And I said it more tactfully than this, but I said, babe, you're you're not even doing the basic obedience steps of Christianity right now. Don't skip to the end of the journey. Don't be mad at your husband because he doesn't want to sell everything and move to Haiti when you're not showing up to church, serving, in a Bible study, 
reading your Bible, praying, and, you know, I mean, just doing the basic obedience steps. But isn't that what we sometimes want to do when the pain of obedience is too much? We just want to skip to the end. I just want to do something big when God's asking us for circumcision. God had always given Abraham promises, and then he asked for circumcision. You know, you may be in that moment right now where you're between a rock and a hard place. You're trying to look for the way forward. And it may not be something big. It may just be a simple act of obeying the thing that God told you in the first place, of not allowing us to have our emotions knock us off course, but to, like we say in our house habits, to stay on mission.